Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me, and of course, you know exactly who I'm going to be introducing, the fabulous Christopher. Christopher, who have we got on today? Hi, Alina. I'm rapidly becoming uh, your Toto, so um, <laughs> I, I'm quite I'm quite pleased about this one because I missed the, uh, the original broadcast. We have a returning guest in the form of Nick Morton, who uh, enjoyed his interview on his new book, Mongol Storm, so much that he wanted to come back and do it all again. He's a historian and senior lecturer at Nottingham Trent University who specialises in the Mongol, Mongolian Empire and the Crusades and Crusading States, having written other books, including The Crusader States and The Neighbours, The Teutonic Knights and The Holy Land. And he's here to talk to us about that very subject. So, Nick, after countless emails, it's nice to meet you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show again. I'm way out of my depth here, so I'm excited to learn something new. Excellent. And it's, it's, it's been, I had a look on the schedule and we haven't done anything on the Crusades apart from Mongol Storm in about, in exactly a year. It was January 2022. So it's about time we did one. And because neither Alina or I are medievalists, could you give us like a brief overview of the history of the period and the background around the, the early Crusades? Okay, so yes, the story starts quite a long time before the, the period we'll be looking at today in the um, late last years of the 11th century. And in these years, a massive series of campaigns set out from Western Christendom, known as, later historians, as the First Crusade. And they then marched across much of Eastern Europe, the Byzantine Empire, what today would be modern day Turkey, Anatolia in um, sort of medieval terms, and then into Syria and ultimately the Holy Land. And there it conquered a series of cities, often very brutally, most famously Jerusalem in July 1099. Now, on the basis of the conquests made by the First Crusade, a series of territories, uh, often known to historians as the Crusader States, were set up across the Levantine region, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the County of Tripoli, the Principality of Antioch and the County of Edessa, and these Crusader states survived for about 200 years. Now, the, the names that people have often heard about when it comes to the Crusader states are Saladin and perhaps Richard I, or Richard the Lionheart, as he's sometimes known. And the situation is basically the Crusader states prospered in their early years, and they grew very rapidly until about the 1120s, 1130s. And then from then onwards, there was a sort of period where the various powers in the Near East 
wrestled for supremacy, not simply the Crusader states versus Muslim powers. There were various different players in that particular arena, as it were. But the upshot was that Saladin, who was the ruler of Egypt from the late 1160s onwards, conquered much of Syria from his various um, Turkish rivals before then conquering Jerusalem in, 10, in 1187. And that then brought about the, the Third Crusade, which is when Richard and Saladin fought over who was going to control Jerusalem. Now, that bit of the history of the Crusader States is reasonably well known. What's less well known is in the years after the Third Crusade, Saladin's empire became very much caught up in infighting as his brother and sons fought over um, Saladin's empire, known as the Ayyubid Empire, the name Ayyubid coming from Saladin's father, Ayyub. And in that period of infighting, the Crusader states rebuilt themselves to a large degree until by 1229, they were large enough to acquire through treaty with the Ayyubid Sultan, the city of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem was um, gained or regained, depending on your perspective, by the Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1229. And from then on until about 1244, the Crusader states continued to rebuild themselves. And it's only subsequently from 1244 onwards that they became more and more embattled until their final collapse in 1291. Now the period that I'm interested in here and the period that I cover in my book is that later period. Why did the Crusader states revive in a sense in the early 13th century? And then why did they, once again, go into decline, ultimately falling in 1291? Why did interest in crusading to the Holy Land sort of dip in the Western, in Western Christendom, though, in the 13th century? Sure. Uh, th this is one of the big reasons given by historians for the ultimate collapse of the Crusader states. Because in 1187, following Saladin's conquest of Jerusalem, interest in crusading was at fever pitch. And big armies set off for the Eastern Mediterranean, at fairly regular intervals until 1229. The last really big one set off in 1239, although even by then interest is beginning to dip in some areas. And their really big goal is to try and um, bring Jerusalem back under Christian control. And many of those armies encounter defeat, but the motivation is there. And we're talking about departures um, from Western Christendom, which doesn't have a very large population in this era, of tens of thousands of warriors, an enormous financial cost to themselves. It's not cheap going on crusade, and yet they're still going in huge numbers. But then from the mid-century onwards, interest in crusading seems to dry up in some areas. Some do go, and there are some smaller campaigns that set out, most famously the campaign led by Louis IX of France, who waged a very um, significant campaign in Egypt from 1249 to 1250, remaining then in Syria until 1254. But after that, even in France, interest in crusading, or certainly departures on crusading campaigns, seemed to go into decline. So it's one of the big questions historians have to engage with. Where, where did that interest go? Why did the uh, motivation to go on crusade dip in the second half of the 13th century? And there's various reasons. One reason is that crusades were being launched by this stage against all manner of different um, targets. 
um, even in its early years, the Crusades were not solely launched towards Jerusalem and the Holy Land. Crusades were launched very quickly against pagan tribes in the Baltic region, Muslim powers in Spain and Portugal, or Iberia. Um, there were Crusades in the Baltic region. Towards the end of the 13th century, they were launching Crusades against the Eskimos, which gives you some idea of the geographical range of these things. Um, and there were also internal opponents of the papacy who also were on the receiving end of Crusades. The Albigensian heretics in southern France are a famous example of that. Also some of the papacy's political opponents. But of course, the more that you diffuse crusading, the more that you multiply the potential targets you can send crusading against, that means that the concentration of those going towards the East Mediterranean will dip. So in some respects, there was no dip in interest in crusading as a whole. It's just that many crusaders are going off towards other targets that have nothing to do with Jerusalem or nothing really to do with Jerusalem. But there's other things as well. Increasingly, there's a squeeze on monastic land holdings, which puts a squeeze on the Templars and Hospitallers, who, of course, are the military orders of the Crusades and major proponents of crusading. In some cases, the papacy actually purposefully diverts crusaders away from the Holy Land to, towards targets the papacy considers to be more imminent. So there's a whole series of different sort of agendas at work. Another one, which I can't really prove, but I suspect is that as the Crusader states began to head seriously into decline, there was a degree of sort of futility about this. You know, why send um, another army to, de to be defeated just after all the other armies have been defeated? It's, it may also have had an impact there too. But certainly motivation for crusading to the Eastern Med does dip in the late 13th century. And that goes some way to explaining why the Crusader states themselves fell towards the end of the century. Absolutely, because you, you've only got a, a finite amount of resources and men, and it's not because they're not necessarily centrally commanded. You don't have like like the Vatican to lead it, sort of controlling everybody's armies. So you have got lo like local states like the Teutonic Knights saying stuff. This we're going into Poland and the Baltics, and not head. So I, I could un I could see why it would be um, very difficult to organise a proper campaign. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Crusades is people. People are people rarely go on crusade out of compulsion. It's 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 a voluntary choice. Um, it it has to be said, of course, if the Count of Toulouse is going on crusade, then the Count of Toulouse's knights are going on crusade, whether they like it or not. But the yeah. Count of Toulouse still has to choose in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and the peasants get even less choice. <laughs> <laughs> so why did those crusading expeditions, which did set out for the Near East, fail in on the battlefield, um, particularly the large ventures in like the Fifth and Seventh Crusades? So the Fifth and Seventh Crusades. They both followed a similar script when it came to strategy because they didn't head for Jerusalem at all, even though Jerusalem was their goal. Their thinking was to advance onto the, against the Egyptian coast, then move up the Nile to conquer Cairo. And the thinking was that once Egypt was under their control, that the resources of the Nile Delta, which of course is very much it's the prime agricultural region of the Near East because the Nile Delta gets flooded every year with the waters of the Nile, which brings the natural fertilizers, which then creates very substantial crops. That also coupled with the fact you've got the Trans-Saharan gold routes going through, or many of them going through Egypt, and indeed the spice trade from India and Southeast Asia, which terminates 
which reaches the eastern coast of Egypt. Then the goods are brought by canal or baggage animal to the north coast and uh, to ports like Alexandria or Damietta for sale into the Mediterranean trade. Egypt's wealthy and they know this. They also know that if they were to try and conquer Jerusalem, and even if they were successful, once the Crusaders have gone home, there's not enough troops to hold Jerusalem in perpetuity. So they need to have a resource base big enough to ensure the permanent conquest of Jerusalem. And this gives rise to the Egypt strategy. So their thinking is conquer Egypt and its resources will enable the permanent conquest and retention of Jerusalem. But on both in both cases, those expeditions fail. And it's interesting that in many ways, they both fail for the same reason. The Fifth Crusade um, embarks against the city of Damietta on the eastern end of the Nile Delta. And then after a very brutal and lengthy siege, lasting a little over a year, the Crusaders do get into the city, following which they then sort of recoup for a fair amount of time before advancing towards Cairo. But then when they advance up, up the Nile towards Cairo, they then got blocked when a spur of the Nile called the, um, which near the town of Mansura, when they had to cross that branch on the other side of the branch was the Ayyubid army. And so there's a lot of fighting over um, in that sort of river area before the Crusaders eventually had to return back to Damietta. And the reason they had to return to Damietta is that the Egyptians launched warships on the Nile behind the Crusader lines and cut off their supply lines. So they began to run out of food, disease began to spread, the Crusade withdrew back towards Damietta, the withdrawal became a rout, the army surrendered, that's the end of the Fifth Crusade. And what's interesting is with the Seventh Crusade, almost exactly the same thing happens again. Seventh Crusaders arrive. On this occasion, they take Damietta very quickly. And they too advance up the Nile towards Cairo. They too reach the uh, branch of the Nile with Mansura on the opposing bank. On this occasion, they do cross um, that spur of the Nile. And there's a lot of fighting outside Mansura, which is sort of indecisive. But again, one of the clinching factors is that the Egyptians once again, managed to get ships onto the Nile behind the Crusader lines, cut those lines, the Crusader army withdraws, and the withdrawal becomes a rout, and the army surrenders. So it's interesting that these two, arguably the biggest campaigns of the 13th century, fail for very, very similar reasons. There is one other campaign that warrants mention, and that happens in 1239. It's called the Baron's Crusade, or the Sixth Crusade. Um, this is the other campaign that has a really big military presence. And it, it, again, it, a lack of familiarity with the landscape and topography goes some way to explaining that crusade's failure too. Because that one doesn't go to Egypt, it lands at Acre in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and then advances towards Gaza. And the crusade commanders, they hear of the Ayyubid army marching out to meet them, so they de they're determined to go and meet the Ayyubids in battle. And the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller, who are the experts in warfare in this region, say, don't march out against the Ayyubid army. Your line of march will take you through a narrow valley, and the Ayyubids will then line the valley with archers and block its entrances and shoot you down. But the Crusade commanders thought they knew better. So they advanced towards the Ayyubid army, they caught in the narrow valley, the Ayyubids line the valley sides with archers, block the entrances and shoot the army down. And so uh, yet again, it's, it's a case of armies from Western Christendom with little familiarity 
with the conditions of campaigning in the Near East, they've got advice from specialists in warfare in that region, specifically the Templars and Hospitallers, but so often they don't listen to them, they do what they want and then get defeated. Isn't that something that's been repeated throughout history, really? I know better, therefore we're going to follow whatever I say. Yes, I mean, <laughs> is the short answer. Although there may be the broader, there may be the broader sort of consideration that knights who go on crusade have been born and raised from as soon as they could understand language on stories of the first crusade, of stories of knights and battles and princesses and both evil opponents and noble opponents, at least that's what the story presents them as, and the gold of the East and the glories of all this sort of, all this sort of legendary material is pumped into them from an early age. And so now they're going on crusade. And so in some ways, I can't help wondering if their preconceptions about what they're going to encounter go some way to explaining why actually they struggle to grapple with the realities of what's actually going on. Because they're sort of they're half they've got one foot in a fantasy world throughout the campaign, which makes it hard for people at like the Templars and Hospitallers to explain what's really going on and how they've got to handle it. Is there also a certain amount of I know with British imperialism in the 19th century, even into the First World War, of, of underestimating their opponents because uh, I'm treading very lightly because I don't want to say something bad, but we are civilized, we know more than our enemies like the British in India or Africa would say that kind of well what do these guys know about warfare anyway we're white Christian warrior nobles we know better how could they possibly beat us the crusaders thought that um, the crusaders had respect for their opponents they knew they were they were going to be meeting armies that were very competent and they, they brought that as a preconception that's not something they had to learn um, one a key element of the stories that they brought on campaign is a tremendous respect for Saladin, who becomes a hero of Western Christendom long before, you know, even in the late 12th century, mm. um, which is an astonishing phenomenon when you sort of think about that against the backdrop of crusading ideology of this time. But they knew that Saladin was extremely competent and therefore there was an expectation that his um, descendants would be as well. What they are bringing with them, though, which to some extent matches that kind of thinking, is they do think that because they, as far as they're concerned, they believe that they are doing God's work, they anticipate victory. They expect to win because they expect that God will give them victory because they are operating in the belief that they are conducting God's will or the Crusaders battle cry is God wills it. And so you have to ask yourself whether that kind of mentality is going to affect their, you know, their, their actual on-the-ground performance in battle if they're bringing a sort of an over, overwhelming sense that you know, they think they're going to win this. Although that has to be offset with the fact that having lost quite a lot of crusades in the 13th century, they may not have been quite so cocky later on in the 13th century as, as defeat mounted on defeat. But you're, I think it's always important to look at the mentality, you're right, that armies bring to campaigning because... That tells you a lot about them and ultimately how they will then perform on the ground in battle. I'm really interested because the next uh, the next step is that another player comes into the whole mix, which is the Mongols. So yeah. how did the arrival of the Mongols impact the fortunes of Crusader states? 
the Mongols added a very, a very uh, unexpected dimension to all this, and unexpected not just from a historian's perspective, but from the perspective of the Crusader states, the Crusaders, and indeed the various Muslim powers of the Near East as well. Because in the Mongols arrive in the Near East fairly briskly. Their first invasions into what today would be the, the margins of the Central Asian steppe take place in 1219. Their first army reaches sort of west of the Caspian, the, you know, the following year. So they, they arrive quickly. And so a lot of people, both Muslim commentators, Eastern Christian commentators, Jewish commentators, and Crusader commentators, they're all having to sort of come to terms and grapple with who are these people and what do they want and how much of a threat do they pose? And so, I mean, for example, during the Fifth Crusade, that, that, um, that huge campaign sent to try and conquer Egypt, the initial rumours go that what they're seeing in the advance of the Mongols is the advance of the armies of Prester John. Now, Prester John, hold on to your hats. This is, this is an unusual one. Prester John was deemed by this stage to be a priest emperor who lived in the Indies, which was not a, which is which is not the same as a modern day India. It's sort of a rather sort of generic term used in this period, sort of somewhere out to the east. Their grasp of geography is very thin in this period. Who ruled over an empire made up of human inhabitants, but also monsters, according to some legends and whose lands encompassed caves where dragons live, according to some legends, and in one story, the fountain of eternal youth. So this is this, the, the concept of Prester John. It's a very powerful one in Western Christendom and all these legends emerge to surround it. And there is a belief taken quite seriously in some quarters that when the fifth crusaders hear of the advance of the Mongol army, what they're actually hearing is the advance of Prester John, who is marching to their aid. And in fact, one of the explanations given for why the crusade paused before staging its advance against Cairo is it wanted to gather more news about the Mongols so it could call or against Prester John as they, <laughs> as they thought he was. They could gather that information and then coordinate their efforts with Prester John, as they thought he was, so that they could then march together on Cairo or against the ver their various common opponents. So it's an astonishing manifestation of the Mongol advance and the legends surrounding it. Now, of course, it didn't take too long for that legend to get pretty exploded. Although even in later years, when people began to realize that the Mongols were in fact the Mongols, that even then they start to embroider legends around the Mongols that in fact the Mongols had already conquered Prester John's kingdom or that Chinggis Khan or Genghis Khan, as he's often known, had married Prester John's daughter. But a place has to be found for Prester John, it seems, in the legends of this era. But that, that also gives rise to another question, which is whose side are the Mongols on? Are they marching to the aid of the Crusader states? Or are they, in fact, marching against them? And initially, it's thought the Mongols are on their side, and then it becomes fairly clear that's not the case. But even when it becomes clear the Mongols are in fact advancing and will be looking to conquer the Crusader states, even then there is some discussion about whether the Mongol invasions will play out in their interest. Because ultimately the Mongol Empire is destroying all the Crusader states' powerful neighbours. 
And in the short term, at least, that plays out in the Crusader state's interest because suddenly they're not being threatened by those neighbors anymore. But they are being threatened by the Mongols. So as a, res as a result, the Crusader states try and send out some diplomats to the Mongols to try and negotiate peace for themselves. One of the northernmost Crusader states, the Principality of Antioch, actually submits to the Mongol Empire. But this is when something astonishing happens, because when the Mongols in 1260 launched their frontal offensive into northern Syria, the Ayyubid Empire collapses, or what's left of it collapses, in the face of the Mongol advance. And that then gives the Crusader states a frontline seat facing the Mongol advance. They're next, basically. And then negotiating like crazy, trying to find some way to save themselves from what they suspect will be a catastrophic invasion. And we're not quite sure what happened to those negotiations. What we do know is that the Mongols sent ambassadors to Egypt, which at this point is ruled by a dynasty called the Mamluk dynasty, or an empire called the Mamluk Empire. And the Mamluks make their intentions very clear because they kill the Mongols' ambassadors and then march out against the Mongols. And crucially, the Mamluks defeat the Mongols in battle. And this doesn't happen very often. And crucially, the Mongols' counteroffensive to that victory doesn't really work, or it doesn't happen because the Mongols themselves get caught up in infighting. And so suddenly you've got a three-way contest that begins to emerge with the two really powerful empires being the Mamluks in Egypt and later on in Syria, then the Mongols, and then the Crusader states working out what on earth they're going to do with themselves in relation to this con contest between the Mongols and the Mamluks. And the Mamluks, interestingly, when they, when they initially marched out against the Mongols, they said, look, to the Kingdom of Jerusalem, do you want to fight with us? Do you want to support us against the Mongols? And the Kingdom of Jerusalem played this sort of waiting game. It seems to have sent um, supplies to, to the Mamluks, possibly horses, but didn't send troops. And I've always suspected that what they're trying to do is in the case of a Mamluk victory, they could say, yeah, we supported you. And in the case of a Mongol victory, they say, oh, we didn't support the Mamluks. But the Mamluks aren't fooled by this. And so after the Mamluk victory against the Mongols, and it takes about 20 years for the Mongols to come back, the Mamluks then devote a great deal of their attention to taking apart what's left of the Crusader states. And that's a process that doesn't really end until the total collapse of the Crusader states in 1291. Do the Mongols suffer from the same sort of problem that the Crusaders do in lack of knowledge of the topography? Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Partly. Uh, it's, 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 it is a fascinating dimension to the Mongol conquest. It's a fascinating dimension to the whole 
region that you do have people operating, negotiating with or conducting diplomacy with people that they've never met before. And so what they do with that is very interesting. And with regards to topography, one story that's quite helpful there, I think, is, as I mentioned, the Mongols invade Syria in 1260. Uh, the bulk of their army withdraws. The Mamluks then defeat the garrison they left to hold Syria. The Mongols then come back in 1280, 1281, where they are again defeated by the Mamluks in battle. In 1299, the Mongols return again, and this time the Mamluks aren't able to defeat them in battle. And so the Mongols are victorious, and they conquer Damascus very quickly afterwards. And so this raises this is a, a, a deeply dangerous situation for the Mamluk Empire because the Mongols now control one of their regional capitals, Damascus. But what's interesting is that almost within a few weeks of conquering Damascus, the Mongols withdraw unfought voluntarily. And it's interesting looking at the commentators remarking on this, because why would the Mongols withdraw? They've been trying to conquer the northern districts of the Mamluk Empire for decades. Now they've done it, they withdraw voluntarily. Why? And one of the answers to this given by... Um, a leading commentator from the Knights Templar, is that the Mongols withdrew because they ran out of grazing. They didn't realize there wouldn't be enough grassland for them to graze their herds and flocks, which are all part and parcel of the Mongol Empire and its war machine. And so as a result, because their animals are lacking space to graze, they have to withdraw whether they like it or not. And so again, it may be the case that topography and landscape plays a part in the Mongols' failure to conquer northern Syria. So let's throw something else into the mix of the possibility of the fall of the Crusader states. Is it a result of trade, especially with the major Italian powers, for example, uh, Pisa, Genoa and Venice, which were fighting one another for commercial supremacy? I mean, I'm guessing they were causing a load of damage to the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Yes, I mean, this is another phenomenon um, in that with the establishment of the Mongol Empire, trade routes shift. In some cases, though, while they're shifting, they also grow in volume. A lot of traffic's passing through Central Asia. To some extent, and for some periods, this is facilitated by the fact, to some extent, and for some periods, this is facilitated by the fact that the huge expanse of the Mongol Empire means that merchants can travel across Eurasia with far greater ease than previously. But with that enormous volume of trade, a lot of it's going through the ports of the Crusader states or the ports of Egypt. And once that those goods reach the Mediterranean, it's the Italian cities of Pisa, Genoa and Venice, as you mentioned, who conduct much of that trade. And so the Italian cities realize that there is a bonanza of wealth to be gained from trading with all these trade routes coming and culminating in the Eastern Med. But whilst that does to some extent work out to the profits of local rulers who can tax that trade, it also means the Italians start to wage significant trade wars because they want to make sure that they and not their commercial rivals get control over those trade routes. And so there are a series of big wars between these Italian cities. And uh, some of them take place actually in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And so in 1256 to 1258, and with conflicts rolling on a bit beyond this, there's a war called the War of St. Sebas which is a war that takes place in the port of Acre, the capital city of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, as these Italian cities and their fleets compete to see who can get greater control over the trade routes and the trade passing through the city en route to the Mediterranean trade. So 
trade's a double-edged knife from the Crusader state's perspective. Yes, it brings a great deal of wealth, but it also causes a great deal of conflict as well. So what else is sort of going on within the Crusader states during this period, other than the uh, military and political cock-ups, for want of a better word? <laughs> well, I mean, for one thing, um, the Knights Templar, Hospitaller, and Teutonic Knight, the three biggest military orders of this era. Increasingly, the Crusader states are looking more like, are coming more and more under their control. Now, previously, the Principality of Antioch was ruled by a prince, County of Tripoli by a count, Kingdom of Jerusalem by a king, with the various aristocracies around those rulers. But as time goes on, those rulers become weaker and weaker as their territories dwindle, as do their aristocrats. And in the king, Kingdom of Jerusalem, between 1225 and, 12, and the 1260s, the Kingdom of Jerusalem is ruled by an absentee monarch, the initially Frederick II, Emperor of Germany, and later on Frederick II's heirs. And so the king's not present. And whilst the Emperor of Germany sends a sort of representative to rule in his name, that's not the same as there being an actual king. So to some extent, there's a power vacuum in the Crusader states because their actual rulers either can't rule or simply aren't there. And so into that vacuum steps the church and the military orders who go some way to maintaining some semblance of order because it's not being provided by these secular rulers. So that is another important dimension to what's going on. So uh, you, you mentioned the, um, the military orders. What, what kind of role did the uh, Templars and the Hospitallers have during this period? Sure. So the military orders are perhaps most famous for conducting warfare. And they're very well set up to do this because they've got hundreds of estates across Western Christendom. And all those estates are required to send one third of their wealth to the Crusader states every year. And the cumulative value of that wealth is probably greater than the income of most kingdoms in Western Christendom. So it's enormously valuable. And the military orders use that wealth to maintain armies of troops and some of the biggest castles ever built in this era. The Templars build a really big one called Safad. Um, to the north of the Sea of Galilee. The Hospitallers um, build their huge fortress of Crac de Chevalier or continually build it up in the early 13th century. Um, you may have heard of it. It's one of the sort of UNESCO World Heritage Sites. It's an enormous castle. You can still go and visit it and see it. And that's, these are just a few of their castles. They've got tons of them. But actually, from the 1260s onwards, once the Mamluk Empire is clearly more powerful than the Crusader States, the military orders switch their focus because there's just no point them fighting anymore or not, or at least seeking conflict because they're significantly outnumbered by their opponents and where the Mamluks can replace battlefield losses very easily, the Templars at enormous cost have to bring them across from Western Christendom. And so from about from the mid century onwards, really the military orders increasingly try and conduct diplomacy and they become among the leading diplomats of the Crusader States trying to negotiate with the Mamluk Empire and other powers and trying to secure and preserve what's left of the Crusader states for decades because they can't do it by force. So they have to do it through diplomacy. And they've become quite well known in the Mamluk court. They're, they're quite regular figures. So it is interesting to see how it's not a story just of conflict. It's, there's a lot of diplomacy that's going on there as well. Yeah, it's not, it's not just the black and white stereotypical 
us versus them, the Crusaders versus the Mamluks or the Saracens. It's, there is a lot of inter interweaving between the two. And, and that's one of the most fascinating dimensions to this period, really, because you have plenty of examples where you have Christians and Muslims on both sides of the battlefield. And you have plenty of occasions when they conduct alliances and diplomacies across religious boundaries. You've got traders who pass freely and trade goods which pass freely between Christian and Muslim territory. You've got artistic motifs like the fleur-de-lis, which find their way into Muslim art. You've got various aspects of Muslim architecture and art that find their way into Western European art and architecture. There's a great deal of exchange going on. And this, this occurs in all sorts of different zones of life. I, one area I'm, I'm particularly interested in is um, falconry, because both the Mamluks, the Mongols, and the Crusader States, they all like falconry. And so they, they trade tips. And so you've probably seen, I don't know, in, in, in films or stories of the Middle Ages, um, rulers with a falcon on their wrist and a little cap on the falcon's head, which is then lifted off before the falcon flies. Well, that's a Muslim invention, yeah. which was then brought to Western Christendom. And there's lots of stories like this. And the, 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 the interchange of ideas goes in both directions. They're both learning from each other. Uh, we hear about shipbuilders from Sicily that are employed in Mamluk, Egypt, to build ships for the Mamluk Empire. The Mongols employ shipbuilders from Genoa. Both these, um, both territories buy arms and armor from Western Christendom, just as Western Christendom buys foodstuffs and other technologies and other goods. Um, Turkish hats are, are, are become so popular in Western Christendom, no attempts to ban them. So. Again, when we think about the, sort of the classic depiction of there being, I don't know, if you sort of look at a map and you'll, you'll see many sort of popular maps of this era showing Muslim territory and Christian territory with a sort of a line between them. It's so much more complicated than that. And, and a, a, to, if, if I can give you two of my favourite examples of this, one of them is a cookbook created for uh, one of the heirs of Saladin. And this cookbook contains, surprise, surprise, recipes and it includes recipes from western christendom including a frankish roast it also includes flatbreads from armenian territory recipes from byzantium and recipes from across the region and so this is another another way in which the you know the food the diet uh, of peoples across the area reflects that sharing of ideas and we hear examples of uh, of authors writing about how people from the Crusader States, so people from Western Christendom, how they chose to eat many of, you know, many of the recipes and foods typical of the Near East. So it's a sharing of ideas. And my other example is much harder, and that's gunpowder. Yeah. Because the Mongols bring gunpowder, or at least the Mongols merchants bring gunpowder. The Mongols that seem to have used it themselves in the Near East at least. But somehow the Mongol Empire seems to have brought gunpowder to the Near East that's how it reached Western Christendom. It's not clear whether the whether Muslim empires of this era already had gunpowder recipes, but certainly from this time on, gunpowder weapons will become much more prolific in the Muslim world. And that will, of course, reshape everything. Mm. Within a century, all these powers are developing cannon, and that has implications not just for the battlefield, but of course the advent of gunpowder will affect taxation, social organization, the scale of war, the impact of war, maritime technology, maritime exploration, the list goes on. Gunpowder chases changes a lot and it's the Mongols 
who play a crucial role in the dispersion of that technology across this era. I never really thought about how much gunpowder can influence literally the world in the matter of a century. Yeah, it's not just about, well, it is about guns in a sense and explosives, but then you, when, you, when you work back from that, guns are enormously expensive. They require huge amounts of taxation to run. So therefore governments have to reorientate themselves so they can afford them. And of course, the ones who can afford them have an enormous advantage in, in battle. Also, gunpowder will ultimately drive heavy cavalry from the battlefield, which will then have implications on the European aristocracy, because of course, aristocrats fight on horseback. That's what they've always done. So it changes that dimension too. And of course, as the armies get bigger as a result of all these things, that means that where a medieval army might raid a, a, a region, a few centuries later, they can, they can raid an entire country. And so it, it changes a lot. It's, it's one of the drivers of what will become known as the early modern period. And in the Muslim world too, you see changes of this ilk taking place. The Ottoman Empire used gunpowder weapons extensively in its expansion. And you can see the use and adaptation of architecture, particularly in military architecture, to incorporate both the dangers of gunpowder weapons being used against it, but also defensive gunpowder weapons as well. It revolutionizes a lot across the Mediterranean region, just as it revolutionizes technologies and ideas in other areas too. Absolutely. I mean, my first thought is just Spain, 1492, rolling up into the Americas, conquistadors going to me into Mexico fighting the Aztecs who are using bows and spears, and they're using fire sticks to, uh, and they can just wipe them out in battle. And it's just, it makes such a, much a, a, you know, castles go out the window because cannons can now blast a hole inside of them. It's just such a massive impact. And of course, maritime, maritime gunnery plays a, ro a role too in sort of the maritime expansion of Western European powers in later centuries too. So there's a lot going on in this period, which will have profound effects on later centuries. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm not allowed to talk about maritime history in front of Alina. She gets very upset because I won't stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell everybody that. Oh, wait, everyone knows. <laughs> But um, dra dragging it back before I, I wander off down a rabbit hole, would it be fair to say that the Crusader uh, states were their own worst enemies and kind of led to their own downfall? In a sense, there's a lot of infighting that takes place in the Crusader states. They do make life difficult for themselves. Um, on the other hand, the contest between the Mamluk Empire and the Mongol Empire results in the Mamluk Empire becoming so enormously strong. I mean, Saladin, when he overthrew the Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1187, he brought together the cities of Aleppo, Damascus, and Egypt, as the region of Egypt. And by combining those three powers, he had enough strength to destroy the Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1187. But it took him almost a decade and a half to bring together that concentration of power. The Mamluks got those same three cities working from Egypt as their base within less than a year. And their conflict with the Mongols facilitated that. And that's what gave them the force to be able to take apart the Crusader states. And so it's that conflict and the results of that conflict with the Mongols that give the Mamluks the strength to then take apart the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the other Crusader states in the later decades of the 13th century. So um, what happens to the, because obviously there you have settlers and colonists of foreign better word colonists of like our western franks are living in the uh, holy land what happens to them once the um once the crusading states cease to exist 
so a lot of them left by this stage well in 1191 richard the first of england conquered cyprus and cyprus remains a kingdom within christendom until the 16th century and so the most natural place for the frankish population of the crusader states to flee to is cyprus some probably also went to armenia which remains a christian kingdom until 1375. some went back to western christendom but there certainly was throughout this period, as it becomes clear the Christian states are declining, there is a sort of an ongoing evacuation of the Christian states, which then reaches its culmination in 1291 when the kingdom, when the kingdom of Jerusalem collapses with the fall of Acre. Uh, others, a few seem to have remained, but also it's interesting that it's not just Western European or people of Western European origin who flee the Crusader states. A lot of people in the preceding centuries, both Eastern Christians, and also possibly some Muslims as well, fled into the Mediterranean region, not to get away from the Crusades, but to get away from the Mongols. And so there, are, there is an evacuation taking place from the region as people are trying to get away from the, what is by this stage, the global superpower of the Mongol empire. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of population movement taking place at this time. Yeah, the, the inevitable sort of human tide every time there is massive global cha- uh, sort of political or inv- theory of invasion, you get the, the tide of people moving away. Indeed, yeah. And do, do you get many people, because obviously there have been, families have been there for quite some time, do you get a lot of um, a lot of them staying behind and just embracing it because that's where they've always lived and it's where their families, because when you've been living there for three, four generations, it makes sense to sort of stay. It's uh, why leave home. Sure, I mean, so, some families have been there for almost for a century and a half. I know very few examples of them staying, at least staying permanently. One example I do remember is a later pilgrim in the 14th century, because the Mamluk Empire, it recognises very quickly that it's very much a good idea to allow Christian pilgrimage to continue to places like Jerusalem and the various sites connected to the Bible in the Holy Land. And so pilgrims continue to go to that area. And there's one interesting pilgrim account where um, the pilgrim actually meets someone who used to be a member of the Knights Templar, but who has now settled down in the Near East. So there does seem to be some examples of that, but I only I, I know of a few. Uh, Nick, that's been absolutely fantastic. I'm, I mean, my only crusader knowledge comes from uh, watching Kingdom of Heaven. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I, I don't really know that much about it. So this has been really interesting and I really need to really need to finish reading Mongol Storm, which I'm enjoying at the moment as I'm going through. But uh, beyond your book, and where, where else can people find out about your uh, work and if they're interested in the subject? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I do have a new book that's come out which deals with the events of this era called The Mongol Storm, Making and Breaking Empires in the Medieval Near East. And so that's available um, in many shops, but also online places like Amazon. You might also be interested to um, look at my YouTube channel. The handle for that is at Medieval Near East, where I offer various uh, sort of short talks on things like Crusader castles and Crusader ships and um, also the history of the Mongol invasions into the Near East as well. So you might find that interesting. Uh, that, there are also links on my institutional website, so you just put my name into Google, uh, which will then give you links to my, my books and articles and things like that. That's, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. And uh, that's my afternoon plan. Wondering how to <laughs> <do it> now. <laughs> but um, thanks very much for uh, coming to talk to us again and uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. I believe we might be talking about Mongols at some point. Perfect. I look forward to it. Okay. Thanks very much. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. 
This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.